welcome to Triad Warriors. I am your host, Annie Randall, and this is a safe space for real talk regarding all things Jesus, mental health, and of course, your relationship with food. Welcome back to the second season of Triad Warriors, the podcast where we are talking all about the many, many factors that can cause and or influence disordered eating. With us today, we have a special guest, Dr. Charlotte Nowak, who is going to be talking about digestive health and the ways in which digestive issues can be both the cause and the result of disordered eating. Dr. Nowak is a licensed naturopathic physician and a resident physician. She is currently completing her residency for Dr. Jason Wysocki at Eight Hearts Health and Wellness here in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Nowak's practice focus includes gastrointestinal health issues, mental health issues such as eating disorders, and women's health and hormonal disorders. During her free time, Dr. Nowak enjoys reading novels, baking, and listening to podcasts. I first met Dr. Nowak at our church's women's conference and I'm honestly so grateful that I did. She holds a wealth of knowledge and is tr- it is truly an honor and a privilege to have her on the show with us today. With that all said, I want to give you an opportunity to share a little more about yourself, maybe share a little about your educational background, why you got into naturopathy, and how this topic relates to your personal story. Thanks so much for having me, Annie. Of course. I am thrilled to be here. I think this topic is not addressed nearly enough, and it's something I'm very passionate about, so I'm eager to dive into everything. Uh, You already really touched on a lot of my educational background, but basically I received my naturopathic medical degree at Bastyr University in California, and this was a four-year doctorate program that was dedicated towards learning both conventional and natural medicines, though I must profess I have a little bit more bias for the natural. Mm -hmm. And now I am practicing here in Portland while doing a specialty residency in gastrointestinal health. Awesome, Um, much needed. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, why we're here today, right? So how I ended up getting into naturopathic medicine and kind of my personal, some of my personal story from what you were mentioning uh, kind of begins back at, when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. So it was around age 14 or 15 that my general health and vitality was starting to decline. I was very fatigued and I had been swimming competitively growing up. So I really was able to see a difference in just how I was feeling and how I was able to perform. So my coach was also getting a little concerned and he had a discussion with me and my parents that he thought I wasn't getting enough nutrition, not Mm. enough calories. So then there was a phase where my mom got me some weight gainer shakes, Mm. which I don't know if you've ever tried those, but they are very decadent, (laughs) (laughs) which I'm not opposed to by any means, but it was an interesting experience. When I think back to it, it was kind of the first time that I really was forcing myself to eat when I wasn't hungry and like going past those natural satiety cues. Mm. So that was one factor in trying to kind of regain some health. But my mom was also wanting me to get some testing. So I ended up getting testing for celiac disease. Mm. And with that, luckily it came back negative. But one of the antibodies was a bit elevated. Mm -hmm. So the doctor said that... I didn't have to stop eating gluten. I was fine to continue. And this statement really stayed with me. So even when I did choose to become gluten-free, I felt like a fraud in that I didn't truly have a reaction to to gluten. Um, And then also amidst all of this, my mental health was taking a big dive 
and I ultimately ended up taking several breaks from swimming. And my high school friends who weren't athletes, I had been used to, they were constantly talking about dieting. Mm. And I felt like that was just how I was going to have to live now, that I didn't have swimming to quote unquote keep me in shape. So that kind of kicked off me restricting my calories and trying to lose weight, which clearly from what I mentioned earlier, I did not need to. (laughs) Um, So that eventually did cascade into binge binging and it ended up kind of looking like not eating at all throughout the day, not Mm -hmm. at school, and then getting home and eating anything I could get my hands on. Um, So, and when I was feeling especially bad about myself in like the the binge, I, I would eat foods that I knew had gluten in it. So it was kind of, um, kind of a vindictive way to treat myself in that. And how the kind of gut health side of things ties into all this, it was right around that time that I was starting to get horribly distended. (laughs) And it was not solely in relation to the overeating experience. And that further was interfering with my body image perception. Uh, Like you can imagine if you're in a swimsuit and you're very bloated, that's a very uncomfortable experience on multiple fronts. Um, But I did eventually get some help from professionals. I saw a therapist and learned my experience did qualify as an eating disorder. (laughs) And just kind of having that validation of my experience was very helpful. And then I had other health professionals that did validate that I was having a genuine reaction to gluten Mm -hmm. and then also dairy, which was a a new finding for me. So I did eventually greatly reduce or cut those foods out and I noticed a huge improvement in my digestion and my mental health, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't a perfect fix. And... But it was a big step for me at the at that time. But that experience ultimately led me to naturopathic medicine, where I found there was so much more to learn. And then now my residency in gastrointestinal health mm-hmm. has continued to help me understand even greater depths of the connection between mental health issues like eating disorders and gut health. So that additional insight is what I'm here to to share today because I believe you cannot ignore the gut when you have or you have had an eating disorder. Yeah, 100%. Well, first off, thank you so much for sharing your uh, story. That was really like raw and vulnerable. And I think there's a lot of power in leading with vulnerability, especially as like a health professional who is helping people and for others to know that you have been through things too you're not just this like perfect figure Mm -hmm. who's telling people what to do but you understand it and you get what it's like to have the struggles with not only food in terms of like your relationship with food but the digestive side of things like you talking about being uncomfortable in your swimsuit i mean if you're distended and you're already feeling self-conscious about your body Mm -hmm. like how much more self-conscious are you going to feel in that in that space and so it's like you can really relate to your clients on that level and so yeah i just really appreciate you being here today and you sharing your story and going to share all your knowledge about well some of your knowledge assume we won't get into all of it that would take far too long i would love to we don't have time for that we'll start somewhere yeah and about an hour of your knowledge maybe but yeah like i said it's truly a privilege to have you on today's show and i'm just like really excited to kind of learn more um about what you have to say Thanks. And yeah, I fully believe in having that vulnerability and that creates just a stronger connection between people. Yes. I think strength definitely comes from vulnerability and Mm -hmm. I didn't want this to be solely me bringing in the science. 
Yes. Because it's so much more than that. It's Even so though that's cool. a huge piece. It is a huge piece. And the <laughs> science can help us to understand things and help us to like click at like the cognitive level of understanding like what our bodies are doing but there is the whole emotional level it's like we're emotional beings too and so like having the like personal tie yeah it's very huge so thank you again um and as you were saying uh it's very important for people who struggle with eating disorders to look into their digestive health because the two are extremely connected i myself had horrible digestive issues for years and years and so i get how that feels too um but yeah we'll allow you to kind of dive into everything so you and i both know that these things are connected and when we met to plan this episode we spoke a little bit about what you related to the chicken or the egg kind of theory which comes first the eating disorder and the digest or the digestive issues uh so could you explain a little bit more about the connection between these two things in terms of the available research and just what you've seen in your practice Certainly. Uh, so firstly, this is a question that researchers are beginning to ask. So are people with eating disorders more likely to develop digestive disorders and vice versa? Are people with digestive disorders more likely to develop eating disorders? And in simple answer to both of those questions, yes. Now, the kind of next advancement of that is is there an actual causal relationship? So can having an eating disorder cause digestive disorders? And that is a little harder to define when it comes to research, but there are findings given that those theories could very well and are likely true. And it's my belief that either could be happening first and it's likely a culmination of several different factors and i like to also talk a little bit on what proposed factors are from from the research to okay. in that interplay yeah definitely so in that relationship there are some more general factors that can play a role like someone's gender just their mental state and eating behaviors or even body size, weight, and then there can be some more physiological things like how the motility of your digestive tract, so how your digestive tract is able to move things through and process things, and also some of the signaling molecules in the digestive tract, so GI peptides we can call them and also the microbiome really huge piece that huge piece <laughs> hot topic right now too. very hot topic <laughs> which we'll touch on more later <laughs> but um and then even something like vomiting you can think of vomiting can be a symptom of a digestive disorder but can also be a symptom of an eating disorder mm -hmm. and all all these things can make up someone's individual risk factors or contributors to the development of the these things yeah totally it's uh kind of the whole premise of this season is all of the factors that play into eating mm -hmm. disorders and that they're uh very widespread and the same goes for digestive disorders as well that it's very widespread as also and then going into each one of those things so like us just talking about the digestive piece it's like then there's multiple things in there. Yes. So it's like super complex. <laughs> and I think this is why a lot of uh, healthcare professionals tend to steer away from like eating disorders and digestive disorders because both of them are very complex things. And here we are talking about both of them together and right. just adding to the complexities. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, but it's like there is a lot more research, like you said, going on around the connection of these things and what is causing it and what are then the the pathways to healing. Yes, exactly. I was very pleasantly surprised when looking at the research to see that there is a lot of research investigating our topic today and yeah. it's progressing in a way that we're starting to see some 
answers to that because mm-hmm. research can be a very slow, grueling process. But yeah, um, yeah, I, and I'm very excited that people are wanting to focus on these issues. Yes, they're super important too because I find that like when I had my digestive issues, like it controlled my life. So, so did the eating disorder, right. and both of them were very connected because as I had more digestive issues, my eating disorder got worse because it was like, oh, food's the problem. I need right. to cut out more and more food, and I know that's something we're going to talk about. But yeah, it like very much. It's very important, like you said, because it has such a profound impact on people's lives negatively when things are in dysfunction and then positively when you are on that pathway to healing yeah very much so yeah awesome uh so when we talked earlier you had described some of the different symptoms that are caused by the different forms of eating disorders so can you spend some time explaining what some of those differences might look like and what are some of the unique digestive challenges that individuals might be facing um, in relation to their eating disorder Yes, there have been found to be some differences in digestive symptoms depending on the eating disorder that someone might have. And with this, I just want to say it's important to keep in mind that these are trends. So Mm -hmm. if this doesn't match your experience, it doesn't mean that it is not connected. Um, But to talk about some of the specifics and correlation, Mm -hmm. In truth, there is a lot of overlap in the digestive symptoms that can be experienced Mm -hmm. with an eating disorder, but there are some distinctive differences as well. So if we look at the three most common and talked about of anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating, that let's take the symptom of heartburn Mm -hmm. and acid reflux. With all three of those eating disorders, those can be symptoms that are, the heartburn and reflux can be symptoms correlated with those. Mm -hmm. And then also things like nausea and epigastric pain, so pain in the upper part of your abdomen are also symptoms that you can experience with all three of those eating disorders. Some areas where there is a little bit of difference is when we think of what I mentioned earlier of motility. Mm -hmm. So how long is it taking for your digestive tract to process and move things through? So with binge eating disorder, it's known for things moving through a little more quickly. Mm -hmm. So with that, you can kind of naturally think tends to be more diarrhea and just the transit time within the colon tends to be decreased so shorter but then anorexia and bulimia tends to be more the opposite so things tend to be a little slower Mm -hmm. and that is kind of from the perspective of the colon but also we can think of something like the stomach and how things can move through the stomach so if we're thinking of things not being able to empty out of the stomach well or quickly uh, an actual diagnosis for that could be gastroparesis but there's various mm. degrees of severity that could happen there but we do know that with anorexia and bulimia it does tend to have a delayed emptying rate from the stomach mm-hmm. so that can very much correlate with feelings of fullness lack of mm. hunger yeah. or just being full very early into a meal just like a few bites and you're like I can't do anymore yeah so that that sort of pattern is when you can start seeing how this is more the physiological side but it's an experience that you're getting within a meal as well yeah and that makes it so difficult difficult to listen to like true hunger and fullness signals and I think it's really empowering to know that there are physiological things going on in situations like these because oftentimes when people are struggling with eating disorders the message that you get from society is that you're quote crazy or just broken or like all these things going on and it's like 
Well, there's like, like obviously there's the whole psychology side of it, which it has tons of reasons for even just being afraid of food. But if you're like physically feeling uncomfortable when you're eating and after a few bites, you're feeling full, like, of course, you're not going to want to eat more because then the feeling of fullness is also can be associated with anxiety. And so it's like eating just becomes this extremely anxious experience, but it's like there's actual physiological things going on. Um, and chemical things going on and there's reasonings for all of these experiences yes and kind of what we've mentioned and we'll talk about more is that it in that specific example it's not like a specific food that's causing that exactly it's it's more the neurology of the Mm -hmm. system yeah that side of things so but if you're in the thick of it it's often the first thing that someone will think of Mm mm-hmm Yeah, the first thing someone will think of is like, oh, either eat less food or I need to cut out this food because it's causing issues. Um, But yeah, you saying like, it's not that specific food. Like any food could cause that issue if something's like functionally wrong. Mm -hmm, Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Did you have anything else to add to that question? No, um, unless you had any more specific questions for me on it. <laughs> no, no. Well, we can move on to the next one. Uh, so the gut-brain axis is well-known link uh, between the central nervous system and the nervous system of the gut, which is known as the enteric nervous system. Further, research in recent years has shown a strong link between digestive health and mental health, which is something you've mentioned a few times. And this certainly includes eating disorders, which is in the realm of mental health. And so I know that you have a lot to say about this connection and something we talked about when we met earlier so can you explain what the gut brain connection is and how does mental health impact digestive health and vice versa yes big question big question (laughs) so uh, like all the big questions it isn't always a very straightforward answer but I like to cover as much as I can from different angles on this but the, the gut-brain connection is a very nuanced and complex connection that I believe research is only beginning to get an understanding of. If we were just to get an idea of the breadth of influence here, the, some researchers consider the gut microbiome to be our second genome because mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. consists of 90% of the total number, number of cells that interact with our bodies. So the cells that aren't our own, but interact with us, that symbiotic relationship. So very huge influence, even just from that level. And then also what you were talking about was the central and enteric nervous system, a very common nerve that I will talk about with my patients is the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. So that is a cranial nerve, meaning it comes directly from your brain, not from your spine. And it is a pretty extensive nerve for a cranial nerve. So it has, it will reach all the way from the brain down to your digestive tract and has a great influence on digestion. So it's very much part of that parasympathetic nervous system, which we commonly refer to um, as the rest and digest side Mm -hmm. of the nervous system, the autonomic nervous system. And also, when we think of the microbiome, those are organisms that are constantly interacting with us. And just like any relationship, this goes in many directions. So those flora affect how we interact with the world, Mm -hmm. whether it be the food in it or our mental emotional state or even the integrity of our digestive tract. And also with these bacteria to kind of further expand on that, research is finding that they can produce specific neurotransmitters. Mm. It's Mm -hmm. actually quite common. So these are signaling molecules that we more commonly think of taking place and being used in the brain, but are actually heavily and even more so present in the gut yes and that these bacteria in our digestive tract are part of that production is very fascinating to me 
And not only do they produce these neurotransmitters, but other types of signaling molecules that are part mm-hmm. of that process of digestion. But also, I, I believe mental health as well. We just don't have a way to really quite understand that yeah. yet. Um, but some examples of those neurotransmitters are serotonin, dopamine, and GABA, and also histamine is a neurotransmitter often mm-hmm. used in the digestive tract. So very fascinating. Oh yeah, so fascinating. All of that information I just find to be so interesting and can nerd out on just how big of an impact our gut has on our like overall health. And this is something people didn't know much about for a long, long time. And mm-hmm. we barely know about now. We're starting to learn more. Um, but just the link between like mental health and and uh, our digestive health is just so fascinating. And then that even kind of ties in, which I'll talk about with the uh, counselor that I'm going to have on, about how trauma then can affect both eating disorders and digestive issues. Oh, <laughs> and yes. like all of it is tied together because we're holistic beings, right? Very it's all tied together. So. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why it's sometimes harder to answer these questions, but I think they're still very much worth asking. Yes. <laughs> um, and also with just an interesting connection with the neurotransmitters again is a lot of gastroenterologists will prescribe certain types of antidepressant medications for mm. functional digestive disorders like IBS. Oh. And now we're kind of getting an understanding of how that can be playing a role because of the huge effect that neurotransmitters are having in gut function. Yeah, that's so interesting. I had no idea that they would prescribe stuff like that. Yeah. But yeah, it's do. all connected. Hence why you probably went into naturopathy because it's more that like holistic type outlook on things that it's like oh it's not just a b a plus b equals c it's like this interweb of all of the systems in our bodies impacting one another which exactly is very interesting for sure I, I agree yeah and with all this you can see it's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the relationship between you and your microbiome. Mm-hmm. And eating disorders specifically are having a growing amount of research when evaluating exactly how the gut can be a part of this picture like we were talking about. Mm-hmm. And studies do find actual differences in the microbiomes of people who do have eating disorders. Mm-hmm. So one example of that is a study found comparing between people who had binge eating disorder and who the study considered obese compared to another population where the study just considered them to be obese. And they found that there was a distinct difference Mm. in the gut microbiomes between these populations. Mm. So that can lead to further questions of does the actual eating disorder contribute to these changes in the microbiome or did something happen prior that changed the microbiome and then that predisposed some of these individuals to developing the Mm. binge eating disorder yeah and that's very interesting (laughs) yeah it's like which comes back to the chicken or the egg which one came first exactly (laughs) Um, But we do know there is a distinct difference, and that's where it kind of comes in for me of, okay, what can we do to Mm -hmm. help help improve that and balance that and just raise someone's foundations of health? Mm -hmm. And another example in general with differences in the microbiome and in eating disorders is that in general, gram-negative bacteria, so kind of a broad category of bacteria, can produce bacterial lipopolysaccharides, or we'll just refer to as LPS. So LPS does have ways of being involved in someone's regulation of food intake through specific signaling pathways. Mm -hmm. So we can think of how an imbalance of such molecules produced by the bacteria can then impair like feeding behaviors and potentially affect weight loss 
And then also LPS does many things, but it also produces something that increases the blood-brain barrier permeability. Okay. So that's that kind of protective shield around your brain. So if it is making it more permeable, then more inflammatory inciting factors can get in and affect the brain. Mm. And also, this is done by elevations of signaling molecules that are responsible for an appetite-lowering response. Mm. So it is actually seen that some types of eating disorders have a larger amount of these gram-negative bacteria. That's so fascinating. Right? Yeah. You were saying you went into all the science on it and you did for sure, but it's so interesting. Yeah. And yeah, it just really shows just how much is involved here. Um, and yeah, how important it is to take care of your gut health and to kind of get to these root issues rather than doing the quick, easy fixes that the so-called quote, got experts on uh, Instagram uh, <laughs> will we'll tell you oh, yes. <laughs> right. the yeah. ones who don't, don't have the education you have. <laughs> I, I hugely wish there was a quick and easy fix for these things, but mm-hmm. the reality is it didn't, it wasn't a quick and sudden start and process. Yes. So it will often take some time to kind of come out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I did dig a bit into the science, so hopefully it's not too much, but I did have a couple other examples just to further expand on how deep this connection goes between eating disorders and the microbiome and gut health. So when I was talking about there's so many signaling molecules in the process of digestion, and Mm -hmm. one of them is something called alpha-MSH, and it's a big part in regulating when you are full Mm. and being able to send that signal to your brain or acknowledging that you are full and just ready to stop eating yeah so the there's a certain protein that is produced by e coli in the gut and this is not the e coli associated with food poisoning (laughs) there are several types so this is an e coli that you would want or expect to see in the gut (laughs) yes i just want to clarify that but there's a certain protein or peptide that is produced by e coli that is found to mimic this protein that your body is producing the alpha Mm -hmm. msh okay and with that it is able to kind of mimic the effects of it okay so researchers have found interestingly that people with eating disorders have higher levels of this protein produced by the E. coli Mm. in their blood. So just kind of begs the question of how could that microbial balance also be affecting, okay, acknowledging when you're you're hungry and when Mm -hmm. you're full. And not only does alpha MSH affect that cue and signaling pathway, but it also has some effects on feelings of anxiousness. Mm, mm-hmm. um, so I think it's very interesting that a signaling pathway that is involved in hunger signaling can mm-hmm. also be involved in just mood and yeah. that side of things too. Yeah, that's so interesting. And that is like really sheds light on why it's so difficult to reconnect with your hunger and fullness signals because it's like the surface understanding of like intuitive eating which is something i talk about a lot is oh eat when you're hungry stop when you're full which intuitive eating is a lot about a lot more than that of course but it sounds like such an easy solution like oh eat when you're hungry stop when you're full but as you're describing here there's so many things that can impact our ability to feel hunger to feel fullness and then to bring in the feelings of like anxiety that so many experience around food and so it really sheds light that like anyone who's struggling to connect with those things it's not that they're flawed or they lack self-control or that there's something like wrong with them on a like moral level it's there just might be some disconnects or some other deeper things going on inside of their bodies exactly very much so 
and I think in what I've appreciated in educating myself around these things is just further validation of an experience yeah and I think that is can really make a difference for someone um and one more microbe that I wanted to talk about awesome (laughs) let's do it So this is also a bit of a mouthful, but it's called Methanobrevibacter smithii. I'm not going to repeat that. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm just going to call it M. smithii. But this is a microbe that is known to be very efficient in its metabolic process. So being able to get food, process, and pull a lot of nutrient out of that food. Mm -hmm. So when we think of this if someone isn't eating much food your body and your microbiome is having to adapt in some way in order Mm. to keep you going and it's actually seen that m smithii is tends to be higher in patients with anorexia Mm. and we some researchers have proposed that this is kind of an adaptive mechanism for people with anorexia to be able to still get nutrition Mm -hmm. but also this is a microbe that produces uh, has a gas byproduct with its fermentation process so as it's eating a certain gas called methane is the byproduct of that and the interesting thing about this gas production in your gut is that methane can cause symptoms specifically mm-hmm. and while well, the methanobrevibacter smithii and methane can is associated with a slower motility mm-hmm. so the greater class of this microbe is called methanogens so methane producers mm-hmm. and research is showing more clearly that it's very likely even the presence of this gas can kind of paralyze the cells of the the mm-hmm. nervous cells the enteric plexus of the gut and prevent things from moving through as well mm, yeah so whether this was an adaptive mechanism or is also part of continuing that process kind of getting yeah. in a, into a cycle of things mm-hmm. i i think is very fascinating but with all of this this ultimately can factor into treatment and what we were talking about like if the stomach for instance isn't moving things through as much yeah you can that will present in digestive symptoms yeah that makes a lot of sense and honestly how amazing are our bodies i mean if we just think of this as an adaptive response like somebody not getting the nutrition that they need like at a survival level that's honestly quite remarkable that our bodies can do this to keep us alive right yeah and so in times of perhaps maybe a real famine like great that's really helpful (laughs) but in cases of eating disorders where it's like okay you have access to food but there's other things going on it's not so helpful um i mean it's keeping people alive but it's you know we we want to fix that um but also that makes a lot of sense what you're like even now i'm like thinking about Mm -hmm. my eating disorder when i had anorexia (laughs) me like like i mean i obviously knew these things were connected but thinking about the science behind like i had really slow uh, motility and SIBO and all of these issues and it's like oh my gosh like there's the reason like that makes sense that makes so much sense (laughs) yeah and with what we were talking about earlier with um anorexia having a longer transit time and more trending towards Mm -hmm. constipation so yeah more common to have the methanogens in Mm -hmm. anorexia and I from my belief I think that can be a very big role into the etiology of that yeah that makes so much sense and I agree with you you were saying how it's uh very validating of an experience like even me saying this right now being like oh that validates that experience like that's what was going on and that's part of why we're doing what we're doing right now is hopefully anyone who is struggling with some of these things can be like oh hey like this is validating what's going on I'm not like making this up it's not in my head like there's 
a reason for this. So, yeah. Exactly. Um, cool. Are, was there anything else you wanted to add to that question? Um, just, I know I got very much into the science there, but I do want to acknowledge also just our own feelings of, or just emotions mm -hmm. and stress and how that plays a huge factor as well. Mm -hmm. And we can actually see stress causes physiological changes yes. in your digestion and the gut itself and can like for example in the gut we have these what are called tight junctions mm -hmm. so those are like the interlocking of cells to each other to make sure that nothing is getting past them and into your system mm -hmm. that shouldn't be so mm -hmm. it's a controlled entry <laughs> yeah and if that controlled entry is impaired then that can cause some issues and stress has actually been shown to be able to affect that and yeah. make that gateway more open yeah and it it's just really fascinating stress is something everyone can relate to mm -hmm. experiencing yes whether or not you've struggled with an eating disorder i know <laughs> yes. you've been stressed one point in your <laughs> <Exactly>. life listeners <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah and stress is it is has such a profound impact on our like not only our mental health but like you said it makes physiological changes in our bodies and can really mess with our digestive health and mess with all sorts of other symptoms leading to like inflammation and you know inflammation's at the root of all disease so then yes. from there it's infinite like <laughs> really so i i wouldn't want that to be an overwhelming yeah. piece of information of like oh no i'm stressed and all this is all oh, this is gonna to happen me. to me yeah but i want it to be empowering and that how you are able to manage and cope and mm -hmm. interact with your stress can yeah. have beneficial things for your yeah. health because there's ultimately so many things we can do to cope with exactly. our stress and to manage it, to decrease it where we can. Obviously, life has stressors and that's normal, uh, but minimize where you can and you know cope with it in the other areas where you can't necessarily minimize it. And it's like, it does in that way put some of the control in our hands of like, we're able to do these things in order to hopefully create healing in all kind of areas of our well-being. Very yeah. much so. Yeah, I love that. Cool. So these days, one of the first things that people do when they encounter digestive issues, which we've already talked about, is they hop on some sort of elimination diet and they cut out foods. I know I my, myself did that. <laughs> but and you as and I said, I did too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you and I both know that this is actually a counterproductive intervention, especially when it's done without the supervision of a qualified professional. So my next question for you is why is taking everything out not a good response to digestive issues? And what are your thoughts on food sensitivity testing? So firstly, I view a healthy gut as being able to adapt and be able to use a variety of different nutrient sources. So if someone is having trouble tolerating certain foods, I would really consider it the food's fault. I'd rather ask the question of what is happening in a person's system that causes there to be an undesired reaction. Hmm. So taking everything out, or most everything, mm -hmm. often isn't going to truly solve the issue. Yeah. And when it comes to elimination diets and food sensitivity testing, Elimination diets are considered the, the gold standard of being able to identify food sensitivities. However, these entail going on a very limited diet and then ever so slowly starting to reintroduce foods. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's very difficult to complete an elimination diet and I wouldn't see it as anyone's fault if they weren't able to work through that process. First, it functions on the assumption that when you are eliminating foods to that restricted diet that you did in fact eliminate the foods that you were reacting to. Mm -hmm. And then also, it's near impossible to reintroduce foods in a gradual enough way or 
isolated enough way to be able to accurately identify mm -hmm. those reactions. And because reactions in the system can appear several days after food is consumed, which is why elimination diets require that process to be so gradual. So I applaud those who have been able to complete an elimination diet, but in the context <laughs> of what we're talking about, if you have an eating disorder, this is just a recipe for some disaster. Yeah, <laughs> I agree with that as well. <laughs> yes. Um, and then the pitfalls of the elimination diet, though, are often why someone will choose food sensitivity testing instead, mm. because you won't have to go through that painstaking process. And what food sensitivity testing essentially measures is an immune response to certain foods in the blood. That means that the system has to be exposed to a food and consider it foreign to warrant the immune response. And most naturopathic doctors will agree that food sensitivity testing is difficult when it comes to accuracy and how trustworthy the results can be. Mm -hmm. And it can be hard for us naturopathic doctors to all agree on the best way to approach food sensitivities. Mm -hmm. So um, acknowledge there's a lot of my bias coming out here. But my philosophy is that if there are other aspects of digestive function that we can look at, that's what I would rather start with mm -hmm. too. Because if these other dysfunctions do exist, that can lead to that immune response of the yeah. certain foods. So it's not necessarily the immune response that is, or the foods that are the issue, but those predisposing other factors in digestion yeah. that can be leading to that. And instead, I, with that, you can see how much margin you can get making those other changes for digestive health first. Mm -hmm. And if need be, turn towards food sensitivity testing and whatnot. But I don't take such decisions lightly to tell someone to avoid or stop eating a food. Because once that is said, it holds a lot of weight. Yeah. And it changes how someone can feel or think about a food forever. And just if you think of something you're putting in your body harming you it it doesn't make for good success in just how you can be empowered about expanding yeah. the amount of foods that you're you're able to eat it's really i'd rather someone have be able to eat a large variety and mm -hmm. have the tolerance and adaptability as opposed mm -hmm. to taking out all these foods that could be causing could potentially be causing a response yeah totally because ultimately having that larger variety is going to lead to the healthier microbiome Very which so. we just talked about as being so important and so yes. it's like much better to have that variety from a physiological like health perspective and then also from the relationship with food piece i really like how you said that you T don't take that lightly to tell someone to not eat a certain food because of the weight that that holds like you acknowledge that that one statement of this is causing you trouble and is harming you can forever change the way somebody looks at a food and it really just instills this fear and obviously like in your case where you did discover that like gluten was and it's yeah. not not the best food for you and that's right. fine it doesn't mean gluten's like the devil or anything no. and so like yeah, there is reality in that, yes. that sometimes certain foods don't sit with us well. But I think people tend to say that more than they should. And so I yes. like how you hold that with, uh, I guess, gravity of like what that, that, what that could actually do. And exactly. is that actually necessary? Exactly. Like with my experience, that is the order that I ended up getting exposed to of more food reactions, food sensitivity. Mm -hmm. um, and as we talked about, that definitely affected how I was thinking about food and my relationship with food and my eating disorder. So now that I have learned more, I would rather my patients start elsewhere. 
Yes, not have to go through all the yes. the pain you had to go through. You're like, I went through it, so you don't have to go through it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of like even uh, we both went to church today yes. talking about uh, Bethany talking about wounded healers and yes. how healing out of like your story and your pain. And that really, I mean, comes back to what we were talking about at the beginning with the vulnerability piece that it's like, a lot of people who are passionate about what they do, it's because they've been through it themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Which so. makes a big difference, I think. Yes. Yes. Yes, I did feel like um, her message was very on point for our discussion today. Right. I, love that. <laughs> I was thinking of that too. <laughs> uh, awesome. Did you have anything else for that? No. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So if food sensitivity isn't always the best op or food sensitivity testing isn't always the best option, especially in the beginning when someone's immune system is already like so reactive and like you were talking about, could be a lot of different things going on. And if elimination diets are not always helpful, then what is something that someone could do? Like what are the testing that someone might undergo in the diagnosis process? And to be clear to listeners, like nothing we say here um, is a replacement for medical advice. Uh, Dr. Nowak is simply just sharing general information. So her answer here is not medical advice. (laughs) Yes, very much so. This is just meant to be a resource to help spread understanding of these connections and that is always best guided by a physician who knows your unique history. Um, But there are several testing options available besides just food sensitivity testing. And I'll go ahead and touch on some that I often run, keeping in mind that many of my patients also might have a gastroenterologist on board who is able to order other specialty testing or imaging, those, mm, mm-hmm. those kinds of things, which can be important in some cases as well. But when it comes to testing, I find it helpful to think about things in a very simple manner of when thinking anatomically of your digestive tract. So thinking of the stomach, the small intestine, and the large intestine. And there are tests that correlate to each of these organs. So firstly, there's something called a Heidelberg test, which evaluates the pH in your stomach and how well your stomach is able to produce gastric acid, which is important for digesting protein-dense meals. And then there is another test called a lactulose breath test, which mm-hmm. is, I know you're familiar with, you mentioned SIBO before. Yes. <laughs> um, that is able to evaluate for bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine. So the small intestine isn't really meant to have much bacteria. It's meant to be more so in the large intestine. And that's kind of in the context of what I was talking about earlier, all those microbes are meant to be in the the large intestine. So if there's an overgrowth in the small intestine, that can cause a lot of symptoms. And then there is also stool testing, which gives more of a picture of the large intestine and also a little bit from your pancreas and how well your pancreas is able to produce digestive enzymes. Mm and also other factors looking at inflammation and the immune system within the digestive tract specifically, the large intestine. So really getting, when you see your doctor and then being able to identify of where to start in this testing process really can set the path for being able to have that more streamlined healing journey. Mm-hmm of knowing precisely the areas of imbalance or dysfunction and then how the body, you, the person can be supported to bring that back into greater alignment and then know kind of several steps forward of what that will look like. Yeah, totally. The testing helps to take out some of the guesswork. Like obviously with digestive issues, there often is a level of guesswork and trial and error, but if you can minimize some of that and like know what you're doing and that what you're doing is actually going to help because you've been able to pinpoint what's actually going on, then yeah, that hugely helps smooth out that process for sure. Exactly. These, these sort of tests can give that 
level of detail that, for instance, if someone has a diagnosis of IBS, irritable mm-hmm. bowel syndrome, often that is where things can kind of be left. Of that's the diagnosis. Yeah. But there are several factors that can be found on the sort of tests I, I mentioned that can maybe explain why, at least to a degree, why they have or are experiencing IBS. Yeah. Yeah, that's a huge thing with IBS. Like, I know I got that as, like, a diagnosis for many, many years, and it was just left at that. And it just left me feeling so hopeless because it's like, okay, so I just have these problems for the rest of my life? Like, this is horrible. Like, I can't live like this. And then come to find out I had SIBO going on and, like, did some of these tests. When you were talking about the stool test, it reminded me of me having a stool test and sitting in a hospital with my poop in my lap (laughs) it was obviously in a container but there was a long line and I'm like oh my gosh I'm sitting here with my poop in my lap but (laughs) but once we finally started doing some other testing it's like oh there are things that we can fix and it's like my digestion has been better than ever now and it's so freeing to not have this like small list of foods that I used to only be able to eat and otherwise I would have had digestive issues. So I think that's a huge point about IBS. So anyone who's maybe not even had an eating disorder, but is struggling with IBS, like there is hope out there. Like you can dig into it a little bit more and see what's going on. Yeah. There, there's a huge correlation between SIBO and IBS. Yes. Um, a large percentage of IBS is actually SIBO if you were to test it. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's like 80 something percent, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is a very significant percentage. (laughs) Yeah. But, um, yeah, stool testing, some of the, that, that gets you very intimate (laughs) with your body and what your body produces. (laughs) Yeah. It was a process. It's like 10 years ago, probably that I did it. So obviously a little scarring, but (laughs) (laughs) Right. <laughs> it was helpful. So yes, the goal is to get answers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, awesome. So again, this is not medical advice, but what kind of strategies might someone expect during the healing process, and what are some of the important steps to take, and how might that process of healing your gut and while recovering from an eating disorder look? Yeah. So. Like we were just talking about, the data from testing can really direct and lead the way in that process. And that's a large piece of directing that healing journey and Mm -hmm. allows your doctor to see where you need that additional support. And we've also talked a little bit about how our bodies have this wonderful innate healing wisdom. Mm -hmm. And if we just kind of help you, your body and your system get over that hump, then it can take over and get a lot of the work done to bring that full breadth of healing. Um, But in in that space where it is just a little too much for your body to overcome on its own, Mm -hmm. that's where we would want to do specific things to be able to get to that place where it can start functioning on its own more. Mm. Um, And that can vary of what that would look like but it might be kind of balancing or reducing bacteria whether it be the large intestine or the small intestine can be helping to restore motility and make sure that is happening when it should in an organized manner of things moving through and being processed through the gut Mm -hmm. could be related to helping reduce inflammation in the gut supporting the immune system within your gut or even just helping digestive enzyme production of Mm. how equipped is your body to digest food to to name a few kind of broad ways that this process could occur and in any treatment I think it's very important not to demonize certain foods like we were Mm -hmm. talking about and because once that happens, that can change how someone thinks, feels, or physically reacts to a food. Mm. So especially important when someone is trying to heal their digestion while also recovering from an eating disorder. So I believe that process works best when you can have 
like a team of professionals that suits your needs. So that might look like having a naturopathic doctor like myself or a nutritionist, therapist, an acupuncturist, Mm -hmm. so on, so forth. But Mm -hmm. I think really having multiple people who can support you can be really key because like we were talking about of these are complex issues and we've highlighted a lot of the ways that more the physiology can be playing a role in Mm -hmm. digestive disorders and eating disorders and also vice versa but really when it comes to that level of detail of okay so what what should I be trying to eat every day how should I navigate that relationship with food or just navigating mental health that's where it can be helpful to have other people on board with that process who can all be in line with that same goal yeah totally that's huge with eating disorder recovery is having that team exactly because it's like everyone has their little area of understanding within eating disorder recovery and rather than one person trying to know absolutely everything it's like better if you know you have the team of experts in each area who can then help the one person achieve healing for all of the different factors that have played into their personal disorder because it's like everyone's eating disorder is different everyone's digestive disorders are different there's just so much nuance to it that it's like you need kind of all those different sizes and you or sides and there's no one size fits all approach to healing from these things and i really like how you mentioned um how the demonization of food impacts how you feel about a food which impacts how you react to the food Mm -hmm. physically because it's like how we feel about the food does impact if we're stressed out about eating that's going to just add to the issue because of course we're going to react to a food that we're terrified to eat because we've created that stress response in our bodies that you talked about and it's like all kind of looped up and so then that's where something like talking about relationship with food or working with a therapist plays into the work directly that you're doing exactly um yep that that vagus nerve that we were talking about yes more rest and digest if you are worried about a food that you're eating is causing you harm Mm -hmm. and you're more in that stress state you're more in that sympathetic fight or flight state that Mm -hmm. that will definitely affect how your body is able to take in and process that food a hundred percent yeah yeah and so obviously you listed all sorts of different things that people could expect in the healing process and then it goes back to what i was saying about no one size fits all approach exactly so the key here is to don't try to wing it yourself and reach out <laughs> to an expert and get some help because yes. <laughs> uh, it's complicated yes it is uh, and i never would want it to be of like a tooting my own horn sort of thing no but, <laughs> but the reality is that it it can be very nuanced and yeah i i even in just what I am able to feasibly talk about and what those steps might look like, it, it's kind of general and broad. But mm-hmm. but for each person specifically, it is that it, it's very specific and individualized yeah. and unique. Yeah, exactly. So you obviously know a ton about this, um, and I have no doubt that working with you uh, would be a huge help to so many people. Like, I'm just thinking of all the people to send to you, although I've already been referring people to you, but don't know if they've come or not. (laughs) But with that said, if somebody is listening to the podcast right now and she or he feels like you may be a good fit for them, uh, especially for those who are in the, like, Portland, Oregon area, how might they go about setting up an appointment with you yeah um, firstly thank you of course (laughs) Uh, that means a lot and really quite simple I'll have Annie Annie will have this information of just like our clinic phone number and website but uh, the clinic I work at eight hearts health and wellness here in Portland Oregon basically all it takes is a phone call and someone would be able to get you scheduled Um, and initial appointments are 90 minutes so it gives us a long time to really get to know Mm -hmm. each other and that story of what's been going on 
um, and we do take most common insurances mm -hmm. as well. So awesome. We want to make it as feasible as possible for someone to to get the help that they're looking for. Perfect. Well, I hope that some people are able to reach out to you. And honestly, the work that you're doing is so important. Like it's such valuable work. And I just thank you so much for doing that for people and to really stepping alongside people in their healing journeys. Um, Cause as we talked about healing from digestive issues and eating disorders as well, yeah. but either or or both together yes, exactly. <laughs> they're like it's life-changing to yeah. heal from that and so the work that you're doing is honestly like the word that comes to mind is sacred like it is sacred work and so yeah just commend you for doing that work thank so. you um and i think we, we are both very much playing our, our part in that <laughs> so, we're both trying. I, I, we're both trying. So I'm very happy to be here with you. Awesome. Um, was there any last things you wanted to add? Uh, just that this topic is really dear to my heart, and I'm very familiar with how convoluted the process of healing can be. And I've done all my training in the hopes that I can help facilitate that process in a streamlined way as possible and my own journey has involved many tiers of discoveries and I imagine things could have gone very differently if I knew as a teenager what I do now mm -hmm. I do not regret the healing journey but it has made me all the more passionate in mm -hmm. partnering with others that are seeking the same healing from their eating disorder and for their gut yeah Definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The uh, hard times can definitely be used for good. Like it's one of those Very things where so. it's like, it's like, oh, well, if I could go back. Would I change it? And I have the same thought where it's like, I don't regret it. Like, I don't think I'd change it because for both of us, we have experience with this and it's like, it wouldn't, we wouldn't be the people we are today without the things that we've gone through. So exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you again so much for being here today. Honestly, I learned so much. And so <laughs> and I, I felt like I already knew some stuff on this topic, but you blew my mind on some things here. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I hope that the listeners learned a lot as well. Um, one more quick question that I ask everyone on my show. It's just a fun one. What is your favorite food? That honestly seems to fluctuate a good amount. Um, <laughs> I go through phases. Uh, but lately, I'd say pesto. Mm. I've been all about pesto. Yes. You can never have too much of it on something. No, <laughs> you can never have too much of it. I always feel like I add more pesto. I'm like, that's not enough. Like, you need to do more. Exactly. <laughs> so that's a true statement. Mm -hmm. <laughs> awesome. Well, again, thank you. And thank you to all of the listeners. Uh, and I hope you all have a great day, evening, morning, whenever you're listening to this. And we will catch you on the next episode. <laughs>